You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I took the time this week to go to Reddit. Ah. Reddit is like, I think, probably my favorite social media platform. Are you an active Redditor? No, I'm, I think what Reddit, uh, Redditors would call a lurker. Lurker. <laughs> yeah, I read a lot of articles and jump on there, but I don't, uh, I don't engage with it too much. But I think I have reason for that to change now. Yes, because you can now visit us on Reddit as well, because amongst there, there are many cool subreddits. And really, the experience of Reddit largely depends on which kind of subreddits you subscribe to. And mm. there's an excellent new subreddit called r slash studying pixels. Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pixel Coon did it again. <laughs> yeah. He's uh, slowly dissipating amongst the internet. I thought we'd save some resources on Facebook. And uh, instead, I, I have actually I've depublished our Facebook page for now. Mm. Uh, the reason for that is that it's there's not really been much engagement and we don't have the resources to maintain that page in addition to the other things we do. And instead, I thought it makes more sense and is a more interactive matter to go to Reddit instead where you, dear listeners, can come round. You can obviously get the posts for every single episode that we put out, but also other things such as, you know, polls and discussions of subjects in, in advance or following up on individual episodes. So if you like to, then please head to r slash studying pixels uh, where you can subscribe and discuss things with us. There's even a live chat function there. It's amazing. I really love Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> it's November. It's a new month. And that is why we've also got the announcement of our new Studying Pixels Plus episode for November 2021. Yes, a very exciting one that um, I think we we may have been talking about almost as long as we've known each other. I think, I think so, yeah. I think yeah. so. Always behind the scenes, we've always been talking about a game series that uh, has won over both of our hearts, and that is the Yakuza series. Very exciting, and it was a great uh, kind of, I would say... A, a more than shallow dive into what the Yakuza series is and what it what it presents. And if it's something that you've had on your radar but maybe didn't, you know, get too drawn into, um, check out our Plus episode because we go into a lot of uh, great things about that series. Yeah, How Yakuza Works is its title. And I thought maybe this time around, uh, when we talk about studying Pixels Plus, I can briefly walk all of you out there through the steps of <clears throat> how you can actually get Studying Pixels Plus, because I know that there are people out there who have never really used Patreon, and I honestly myself have never really used Patreon properly before. But uh, basically, here's how it works. Here's how to get Studying Pixels Plus, how to get these monthly plus episodes for anyone who has no clue how these things work. First of all, you can go to studyingpixels.com slash Plus. And there's just like a tiny page and there's a button on it that says become a patron. Because Studying Pixels Plus is basically our Patreon program. And on Patreon, you then see only one single tier. I'm not sure whether we ever mentioned this on the show, but this is just, this is $5. $5 and I for people from the EU, it should be €4.50 roughly. 
Uh, so it's a little bit a little bit less, although taxes still come on top of that. And then you can sign up, you subscribe. You don't have to pay immediately. You'll be only charged in the following month afterwards. And you get a link, a um, link to an RSS feed. And that link you can copy into your podcast player, into Apple Podcasts, into Spotify or whatever. And this will then unlock the plus episodes. So you don't have, as many other podcasts do, you don't have a separate feed, like you don't have two Studying Pixels po uh, podcast feeds, but you have only one feed, and that one feed then includes the unlocked plus episodes, and you can then enjoy them. <laughs> it's like finding a secret in a video game. Yeah, it's like a hidden Easter egg that you can only <laughs> access by paying money for it. It's like a Ubisoft game. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but hopefully more enjoyable. Hopefully more enjoyable, especially because if you then stay subscribed to Studying Pixels Plus for three months, then you also get a nice little sticker that says, I am Studying Pixels and features our cute little mascot, Pixel Coon. And of course, you get our most sincere gratitude because we really need... The reason why we have Studying Pixels Plus is not only because we enjoy doing these Plus episodes and providing you with some extra value, but also because obviously we need some funding to, you know, keep this show going and to cover the expenses of it. In our main story today, we want to talk about time loops. And specifically, we want to talk about the question why every game, seemingly every game these days, is about time loops or in some way features time loops. And in order to answer that question, we are now joined by Federico Álvarez Igarzabal. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Frontier Areas of Psychology and Mental Health. Hi, Federico. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for the invite. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming because we've been actually wondering. Um, we need to talk to you. We need an expert's insight on this matter. We've definitely, and I assume you, dear listeners out there as well, noticed how many games recently have come out that prominently feature the aspect of time loops. We've had just, I would say, just in the last year, we've had titles like Hades, Returnal, Loop Hero, 12 Minutes, and now most recently, Death Loop. <laughs> All like games, some of these games even have the looping in the title already. And we've been wondering, like, why. Why do you think that time loops are so prominent in video games at the moment? Mm, well, I, I don't think there's an easy way to answer that. Um, we're going to speculate, of course. Uh, it could just be that we're experiencing a sort of random clustering of games. You know, how, random and, how randomness works. It's not evenly distributed across time. You just sometimes you have these clusterings where all of a sudden, a lot of things appear that have similar aspects and give you a sensation that something must be happening for these things to appear about all at the same time. But maybe there's no one cause. It's just that coincidentally, a lot of developers a few years ago, because you know we know how development cycles of games are, uh, decided, oh, it might be a great idea to do a game with a time loop. And it just so happens that they're coming out in a sort of you know similar uh, time window or time frame. Um, that might be one explanation. Obviously, it's the, the most boring one. We like to have like <laughs> causal relations and randomness. It's, it's not very sexy, really. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I suspect that, that that might be one one possible explanation. Um, also, I think um, the medium is you know the video of the video game is not a very old one historically speaking. It's roughly half a century old, and it's in constant development and. 
uh, one way in which media, I think, develops, or even you know, art styles and everything develops, is the people that the creative minds that come into the production or the creation of these things are trying to find innovative ways to, to deal with the medium and also self-reflective ways, like saying, okay, what does this medium, this object, this style afford? What does it have? And how can I use it? How can I bring it to the forefront and, and make something original with it that couldn't be maybe found in another medium? And maybe we're coming at a, at a stage in the development of the history of the medium where this temporal layer becomes interesting and... Uh, for some reason, there's some sort of zeitgeist where this topic that's in the air and people are picking it up. So that might be one thing. And certainly loops, I think, are at the very core. Time loops are at the very core of what uh, makes video games special and unique. The way they deal with time and the way that we're always repeating and repeating. Not in every game, of course, but in single player games, this is a very common structure. So bringing this uh, to the forefront and sort of designing a game that that reflects on this and that also gives it a new twist is I think certainly an interesting thing and I, apparently a lot of de developers think so and are starting to experiment with this and I think and we can delve deeper into this if you want um, but I'll stop after this point uh, um, there's also a always a friction I think still between um, the ludic layer and the narrative layer of games right it's this is in the game studies field um, a very cherished topic, much to the exhaustion, I think, of, of, of many scholars, that uh, ludology and artology debate, you know, apocryphal debate, uh, is, uh, according to those who were there, never took place as it is told. Um, but also this topic of this concept of lunar narrative dissonance uh, of Clint Hawking, the, the game developer, right? Um, the idea that the narrative layer and the ludic layer of games are usually there can be dissonance, right? They, they can be not in harmony and produce certain uh, some noise, basically. And I think certainly that, that might be one case with the narrative layer, like how a narrative is structured, right? Usually we're very used, and historically narratives have been linear, right? And now we're presented with this medium that gives us a, a great, very interesting narrative capabilities, but also infuse this sort of repetitiveness in, in narratives by making us loop and loop over and over again events of a narrative um, because of this ludic gamic nature that it has. And I think, I suspect that some of, the, some of these games at least may be a way to deal with these frictions that are generated by time loops and also the relationship. No, but a lot, of, a lot of really good things. Character. I mean, I think one thing that, that they are controlling may come a little bit into conflict. Who, uh, hearing you say that last time. point about the sort of... Um, ludic versus narrative dissonance that's going on. I do think that game overs and deaths <clears throat> have been a part of games, you know, sort of since their inception, there's always been the fail state and you try again. And that's, I think, if you wanted to take kind of a basic look of one of the factors that separates video games from other media, I would say that that is probably one of the biggest ones. And so I wonder to what extent this focus on um, time loops and kind of bringing in the narrative is almost video game stories catching up with their mechanics. I think that's a great way to put it in a way. Yeah, talking about this evolution of the medium, right? And yeah, the way of storing storytelling has to slowly, slowly adapting to to this new medium that you know storytellers are still learning how to work with. And it's yeah, it's like it's catching up. To the, okay, we have these properties of the medium, these temporal properties, how can we tell a story that really fits them and that's not in, in clash with them? And one way I, I have analyzed um, 
in my work is that uh, while, let's say, you're playing a game, right? Uh, like, I don't know. Um, a good example, I think, is Shadow Warrior because there's a, I, I, I run into a concrete little problem there while playing the remake of Shadow Warrior that came out in 2013. You play this guy, he's a low wang at a martial artist, sort of katana-wielding, guns-wielding superhero, I don't know. And you are in this quest together with this other spirit that follows you around, and it's kind of hanging from your belt in a mask, and sometimes this mask materializes a body. And, and anyway, at some point in the game, you've encountered the first boss fight. It's a huge demon that has like an armor. And um, dialogue starts playing between uh, Lo Wang and this demon. And the dialogue goes something like Lo Wang says, oh, what am I supposed to do to defeat this guy, right? And this demon kind of knows these other demons you're fighting against. So he says, oh, look at the glowing cracks in the armor. You know, it's a, the armor has plates and those, some are glowing. And then you have to shoot at those. And the, the OG tells you what to do then. And then you start shooting at them. You shoot at one long enough so that it, you know, it breaks and then it exposes the body. You can shoot there, create damage, and so on until you've exposed all of the body parts that you can expose and defeat the monster. But in the process, you may also die. When you die, the dialogue plays all over again. But you may already be shooting at the plates, right? Just shooting already at the plates, about to destroy one, and then the dialogue plays, what am I supposed to do to defeat them? defeat him and then oh shoot at the glowing cracks in the armor and as a player i found this particularly annoying this repetition and i think this was a narrative device but also that, that also helps you know the players understand the mechanics of the game but that through this repetition becomes uh, you know becomes like a nuisance mostly um and there it's what i i found okay now i've played this game enough that i have knowledge about this boss fight but every time I go back in time, the mind, the fictional mind of my character is reset. So they don't know anymore what, <laughs> what the boss fight is like. So I'm, I'm making decisions and, and acting according to knowledge that I have from previous you know, loops. And my character hasn't been there in those loops, right? It's been reset every time. So there's a disconnect there between like a, like a knowledge gap between me as a player and my character. Maybe it is a reason for why games that are predominantly let's say, gameplay-focused, do not really suffer from that kind of disconnect as much. Because when I think of something like Space Invaders, which is one of the oldest examples probably of this kind of time loop occurring, where this invasion of the, well, Space Invaders happens over and over again, and you are indeed destined to fail <laughs> in defending Earth, but it's not really a. It doesn't feel like a problem. I mean, it it feels like impending doom, the impending doom of the Cold War, possibly if one wants to interpret it that way. But uh, you wouldn't, as a player, think like, "Oh, it's weird that it happens over and over again." Right? There is not this disconnect because this uh, tiny ranger pilot that you're playing there uh, doesn't really have anything of a character consciousness. Maybe I agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, games of skill. I think wouldn't present this problem as much. But then when it's a narrative game I, uh, or a game that has both, maybe start trying to strike a balance between skill and, and also telling a, a story, um, then this problem may become more obvious. And I think some developers at least have shown some being in interviews and stuff, you know, and I've, I've talked openly about trying to deal with this, not in the terms I would discuss maybe, but someone like David Cage, for example from Quantic Cream, talking about Heavy Rain, for example, saying, I want players to play this game once. This is your story with the game. And whatever happens to you is what happened to you. And that's it, because that's life. 
life. You only get to go through once and you don't get to go back in time and, and redo what you did. So his intent is to design games in a way that will at least discourage you um, from going back in time and retrying. You can do it, of course. You can restart Heavy Rain from the beginning, or you can restart, I think, individual chapters. But I think there is a certain thing in the design of Heavy Rain. In, there's no game over screen, or you die at screen, unless, you know, in the very very end of the game where you get it to, to one of the very, very endings, your character may die, depending on your, the decisions you've made. But as a player, you're also not very sure which decisions you've made and which things you've overlooked. And what will be the consequence of each decision in the next chapter. So it's harder to say, oh, I'll go back and redo this because you don't really always know uh, what the consequence of that may be. Yes, I believe he, he famously famously said uh, something to the effect of game over screens or, or deaths are a failure of the game designer. So he, <laughs> okay. he, he believes that, no, there should not be fail states. It should be one continuous story, like you're saying. Yeah, and it's no surprise that someone like David Cage would say that because he's very famous for bringing in aspects of linear media strongly into the uh, the video game as a medium, right? He designs his games in a similar way. To, he considers himself to be director first and foremost, right? And uh, many games do this. Uh, the uh, Telltale Games adventures come to mind, for example, that work in a very similar way. So these are games where time loops are basically a violation of the code of the medium because it's more oriented on what a book does or what a film does than what a game does. And it is a form of distinguishing these titles from, let's say, classical straightforward video games. That's why it's that's why Heavy Rain is different from Tetris. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could also, you know, call this game more like interactive movies or something like that is not an official term whatsoever, but I think I don't think m many people would object if we would call them like like that, like that, like colloquially at least. Because yes, they, they, they don't respond to the same logics of that, you know, video, a lot of video games respond to. They're still video games, of course. I'm not going to contest that, but um, um, I think also like maybe, maybe this is a way of saying that this term video game is becoming too broad and we need to narrow it down a little bit uh, or to compartment, to create, to have more precise terminology to talk about this, all these different things that are, you know, under the artifacts that are popping up in, under the umbrella term of video game uh, to speak more precisely, maybe. One thing that I'm, I'm very interested in, because we talked earlier about, um, use the example of uh, the character is being told, you know, attack these weak points. By the time you've already died once as the player, you understand what to do. And so you feel that kind of disconnection because all of a sudden it feels like they're not speaking to you anymore. It's like they're speaking to the other character. And I wonder then with these games, um, I haven't uh, finished Deathloop. I just started it. But even in the first 30 minutes of a game like that, I, it, it leans into what I would refer to as meta commentary, which I often find kind of grating in, in media. And yet I think in a story where it's about going back and doing things. I will say that I feel immediately more endeared to the the avatar Colt in Deathloop because he is commenting on how repetitious certain things are and how he's trying to find his way out of this. And so it's an interesting thing where where I would normally find somebody talking about the story they're in and maybe a movie or a book to be kind of, I don't know, passe at this point. In a game where the story is that things are repeating, 
having the character call that out almost brings me more into the narrative. And I wonder if the the path that we're on with these games is okay, we've we've now accepted that this is a mechanic that's part of these the, this medium. Um, now what do we do with it? Where do we go and why are we talking about it? That's something I'm interested in and I and I'm hoping that Deathloop is going to be nuanced in how it talks about it. Um, and it seems to be from the from the amount that I've played. But I want to I wanted to get your take. What do you think? Uh, what what is the kind of interesting or or what is the benefit of um, kind of delving into this uh, this idea this phenomenon of we all understand that games repeat themselves. Why is it interesting that we're talking about it in the narrative of the game? You don't disconnect from the narrative in the same way that you would if you only as a player are experiencing the time loop and the, the character isn't, right? What I think interesting, uh, find interesting about these this games where the whole game loops, right? Because that, that, that I think it's a kind of a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, we have roguelikes and, and rogue you know, games for a while, but in those games, it's like, yeah, it loops, but you're kind of starting anew with a fresh character and in a fresh world every time you restart. In these games with loops, the loop is sort of diegetic, right? It's, it's introduced into the the story world. It's part of the story world. The time behaves like this, right, in the world. And your character and you are experiencing it. In the case of Deathloop, I haven't played it, but I, from what you were saying and from what I've gathered from reviews that I've checked and stuff. I think that that's interesting. Before, we've seen games that try to deal with this idea of this this disconnect that I've mentioned in other ways, because the, the typical loop in a game is more of a, it's a loop um, that may, maybe you loop in between one save state and not being able to move forward for a while, but then you move forward and save again. And so then you've, you've passed that part and then you have to repeat it again, right? I've done that uh, and now I'm in another so sort of sub time loop within the game as a player with this new save state, with this new checkpoint. But in these games, it's like you're repeating the whole thing again. And I'm, I think still this is an open question, how effective this will be and how cherished by gamers this will be. I'm playing Hades right now um, and I'm, I'm loving the game. I think it's a brilliant game. But I do feel that after several repetitions, you know, in Hades, you go through different, like, sections of the underworld, like you're playing Zagreus, his Hades' son, and he's trying to escape the underworld, this Hades' real realm. And you start uh, in one of these sections, and there are several chambers, right? Tartarus, I think it's called. And these chambers are in randomized order all the time, and there are elements that change uh, in every playthrough. So it's never exactly the same. But, you know, you start recognizing a pattern and the chambers after a while. In this case, I do feel like I'm a, as a player, I am looping while... But my character is as well looping, but it's not in time. It's, an, it's a different thing because time still progresses, right, in the game. Uh, the, the, um, everyone knows that you're trying to escape, and this is just the nature of the underworld, right? That you die and you go back there because you're already dead anyway or whatever. You're not even, I don't know, you're kind of semi-god or god, I don't know. But anyway, at some point when you get far enough in the game, I, almost, I got to the surface, which is the final sort of stage. I've never, I haven't finished the game yet. And now what happens to me, every time I play, I get relatively far, if not to the surface even. And it's like, oh, all over again, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> um, uh, that's the feeling I'm starting to get now after, I don't know, I think I, I'm at 30-something runs, run-throughs um, in Hades. And um, I don't know what the, what the experience with Deathloop is, because at the beginning, the, the, the first chambers, or maybe in Deathloop, the first, you know, I don't know, uh, sections of the game that you have to play, 
you're already too good for I them. I think, you know? uh, just to briefly talk about Arcane too, I think that what uh, I've only really played maybe a half an hour and I'm, I'm hooked, which is more than I can say for a lot of other games that I've started. Um, but I will say that what I find interesting about that studio is that whether you're talking about Dishonored or Prey, I do think that they are um, interested in developing narratives around mechanics that we take for granted, whether it's morality or uh, control of an avatar, or in this case, I think the the looping mechanic. Um, and so that does excite me. But I, I think that, uh, well, time will tell, not to make a pun out of it, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it will, yes. Uh, the thing is that we've now reached the point where we can say, okay, so time loops are sort of integral to most video games, right? Except for such things like that specifically try to mime uh, linear media such as the the Quantic Dream games. And we've also uh, discovered that uh, games have kind of developed a conscious a consciousness uh, in that sense because they pick up on this uh, on this on this mechanic, on this gameplay mechanic and integrate it into their narrative. And often I feel like to the end of um, introspection, because in such games like Returnal, um, it is the case that you're kind of going through an, a very introspective journey of exploring trauma. You could say it. No spoilers. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk specifically about the narrative, but yes, you explore the protagonist's trauma, and it seems like this is. I had to think inevitably of something like Groundhog Day, the film, which also is about time loops, a day constantly looping while the protagonist, who's initially kind of a douchebag, has to learn how to open his heart to the world and to love. So time loops are also a form of like, uh, yeah, nigh infinite repetition in order to learn an important lesson and discover new things about ourselves, right? Yeah, uh, I think so. I think that's a great point. And there are two things here that maybe can be said. Um, there's an interesting parallel to... Um, concept introduced by Borges in his uh, Garden of Forking Paths, which is the idea of the temporal, temporal labyrinth. Is temporal the correct pronunciation? Temporal? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I got, I I got very know. excited when you mentioned this. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, just to give a, a very brief summary of the story, which is a brilliant uh, short story by Borges. And um, well, the story goes beyond what I'm going to tell because it's the story of this, I don't know, uh, particular guy and how he gets to meet finally um, someone who tells him about this uh, uh, Chinese author um, who had this plan of, well, two plans basically, creating a labyrinth that no one can escape and writing a novel that was more popular than all other Chinese classics, you know, literary classics. And then this author dies, seemingly not finishing his task. And um, what he leaves is a series of notes and papers of, of the novel, which seems to look like drafts, no signs of a labyrinth. What Borges explains, or this narrator explains at some point, is okay that the narrative actually the the story was the labyrinth. Um, all of these different what looked like drafts are actually um, different ways in which the story can unfold, different temporal sort of uh, tem timelines in which the story can unfold. And of course, I think what the story that that Borges um, describes in his in the book would be a monumental task, even an impossible, perhaps, one to undertake for an author in the real world, right? But I do think video games with these procedural capabilities approach that a little bit better, creating these temporal labyrinths, where what, you, what you're presented with is not a spatial labyrinth in the sense that you have to find the way through this space and hitting, like, roadblock or, or like, a, like a you know path that has no end. You hit a wall, have to go back. 
But what you have to find is which sequence of events would lead me to the end of this, right? What things do I have to do, right? If time, you would say, structured as a sequence of events, right? At least that's what we, how we perceive time, right? By perceiving events in the environment around us. Um, then it's, okay, what sequence of events do I have to undertake to, to, undertake to get to the get outside of this temporal labyrinth so that it stops repeating. Uh, and Groundhog Day is a little bit like that, the movie, right? It's, well, the series of events involve also a story. I, I of think that's, uh, that's beautiful in a way. And I'm, I'm struck by the Groundhog Day comparison because I think uh, I'm a big fan of that movie. I'm a big fan of the musical written by Tim Minchin. There's a line um, in probably the breakout song where Rita and Phil are singing opposite each other. And Rita is saying what she would do with infinite time. And she's saying, I would open all the doors. And Phil, counter to her, says, I have opened all the doors. And it's this sort of bittersweet thing where she's all excited about it. He is just completely jaded. And I think that the interesting thing that these time loops can do is even after you've explored everything, you're still left with, okay, well, what does it mean at this point? Now that I have no regrets or that I've seen everything, how can I kind of coalesce a, an actual yeah. story from it? And I'm struck by your, uh, your reference to Zagreus and how you were saying that you got kind of fed up with the early stages. And I think that what's so interesting about that feeling is that, well, how must Zagreus feel at this yeah. point? <laughs> now I kind of understand after having gone through his, his undeath or his life, whatever you want to call it. That is a great point, actually. Yeah, and in terms of getting you to feel what the character is feeling, empathize with your character, I think then that um, Hades is succeeding in that way. With me. You know, I'm I'm really feeling that tedium, that uh, sort of, I really want to get out of here, you know, and stop this maddening loop <laughs> once and for all. Um, yeah, and that, that's, uh, that's, I think that's a great point. It is essentially the experience of trauma that, uh, that, manifests in a in a time loop because a, a trauma or, or traumatic experience often results in flashbacks and flashbacks are you know like reliving that moment uh, over and over again seeking for a way to process it and to kind of integrate it into the linear biography of your existence but um maybe as to to abstract things and to go onto the macro level just for a second i've been wondering you mentioned at the beginning that this might be a, it might be a coincidence that we see all of these games. We've mentioned most of them throughout this conversation already. Um, might just be simply random. It might just be that it's an economic fad or like, you know, in the games industry, it's like just a thing. What the others are doing, they're successful, cool, we're doing that too. And at the same time, I can't help but wonder, um, time loops, time loops, to me, it it seems as if they are very conveniently placed in a time where we um, struggle with things like the climate crisis, where our future is uncertain, where it hangs in the air, we're not sure what's going to happen. With a, a corona pandemic, where often losing the sense of time is something that people complain about when they, are, when they have to stay at home, when they lose contact with other people. I wonder, is this a coincidence? Or are we maybe in our in the condition of our society at a point where we just don't really know what the future what we 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 don't really have an imagination of what our future can be, and that's why we have this inclination to repeat and repeat and repeat. 
I do agree with the, I mean, the current, um, you know, um, global situation. Um, um, I do wonder, though, hasn't that even always been the case, though, historically, right? That we've, I mean, humanity has been, if you look at human history, um, it's been an endless loop of wars and conflict and um, famine and disease. And and this, this this emotion I was talking about of regret is such a, this is something that's such a the core of what's being human. But I think it's maybe more like, oh, now we have a medium that allows us to explore this, this thing that, that is very, very human thing. And um, yes, of course, I think that the uh, current social, global, uh, political, geopolitical, if you want, uh, situation, climate, um, does influence this. Um, I don't know if it would have been different in any other age. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the question I'm raising. But also this, the, the, the personal level, the pers individual level, this idea of regret and, and of what if I would have done differently? What if in this job interview I would have said something different to this question? This question or what if in this first date I would have gone somewhere else or said something different? Uh, uh, in this fight with this family member, you know, why did I say that? And we experience that on a daily basis, basically, this sort of, uh, you know, these regrets, and some of them stick with us for, for our lives, right? Uh, we keep thinking about going back to that moment like 20 years ago <laughs> uh, in the shower, all of a sudden, or when you're going to sleep, it's like, oh, damn, not again, you know? I don't want to think about this again. Um, and, yeah, I think we've come at the point with this, we've first, we've developed this medium that's just past this time, looks, it came with them in a way, and now slowly we're, arriving to that point where this meta layer is starting to being it's being explored for whatever reason because i don't think it's a technical it's not like the technology suddenly allows us to do it i think this would have been possible 20 years ago maybe i mean we had think games like prince of persia the sense of time or that already started that was 2003 i think uh dealing with time loops uh in a diegetic way and in a, a self-conscious way um for some reason, it's now around the 2020s that we're having this booming sort of um, situation with the game loop, time loop games. And yeah, I embrace it. I love it. And I'm, I'm really more than, I think, you know, like I said, we can speculate on why it, it is that it's happening and it's happening now. But it's the important thing is it's happening. It's interesting. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and it's something I was uh, even, uh, you know, I think it's necessary in the evolution, or not necessary, but really fundamental to the evolution of the medium of a video game to start uh, dealing with these features in a very conscious way. Yeah, and it has this to, to do a sort of double-edged sword thing, right? It's on the one hand, the opportunity to open all the doors, but also this opening all the doors can be overwhelming and can be just maddening because you have so many, what if there's another door that's better than this one, you know? And um, and there, there was a, a study done by, I think Markman was the first author at, at colleagues, and uh, where they had like a little computer version of Blackjack, and I think it was rigged in a way so that they could have different conditions, you know? Uh, take all this a little bit with a grain of salt. I don't remember the design of the study perfectly well. But the result was that, um, first of all, negative outcomes led to thinking about what if, you know, this uh, sort of what's called upward uh, counterfactuals, right? Counterfactuals, they're thinking in the sense of what if I've had something that had led to a better outcome, right? Downward counterfactuals would be what if something would have happened or I've done something that would have led to a worse outcome, right? We tend to think less about those uh, for obvious reasons, I think. Um, but um, the more interesting thing was 
participants who had the chance to play another round experience more of those or thought more about counterfactuals like that. So experience more regret in a way because you have the chance, oh, I know I can do it again. So I'll think about it, you know? And I sometimes <laughs> wonder, do we play games a lot because we like the game or just because we're stuck in this? Oh, I can do it again and I can do it better, <laughs> you know? Maybe most of the experience is not in terms of, of, you know, pleasure, that pleasurable. It's just the the carrot that we're following all the time, like saying, oh, I can do it better next time. I can do it better next time and until we do it well. Well enough that we, we can at least exit the temporal labyrinth, like I say, and the game's over, you know? We ended it, finally. Um, and then we get the kick. And, and now we actually reached full circle because that is exactly how arcade games got as big as they got, right? You try every time and you think you can get a little bit better and you see on the high score, oh, someone else managed <laughs> to, yeah, get, that's to get the higher score. So, yeah, I think I think um, this is basically, from what I understand, you say a an integral function of most video games, not all video games, but most video games, and it has to do with the fact that we have a longing as human beings to to consider at least to play with the idea of counterfactuals and we are um we are constantly pursued by a sense of regret if something happens to us that we don't that we don't particularly appreciate so we have this inclination to go back and back all the time yeah and i think also in, in online gaming right that, that's also a little bit it's a different situation because not typically at that time but it's this idea of um, maybe you're prone to keep playing more if you're not doing very, very well. As long as it's not that frustrating, but it's like, oh, I can I go back in there and take my, you know, my revenge. And, um, and, and how much of gaming is being stuck in this regret loop and in self-improvement loop, you know? Um, and, and, and I'm just opening questions. I have to, to what degree that that's really a pleasurable thing or, or the pleasure comes only when, if we finally succeed at something. We're all just feeding quarters into the Space Invaders cabinet of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so very much for joining us, Federico. And dear listeners, what do you think? Why do we see this tremendous inception of video games that are specifically about time loops? Please let us know what you think and write an email at podcast at studyingpixels.com. And in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and dive into some side quests. <laughs> In our side quests, as you know, dear listeners, we are scavenging through the internet to find interesting stories and we're bringing our own experiences of play to the table. And this time we want to start off with number one, which is the release of a remake that has definitely intrigued our interest. And we spent some time with it. That very game is called, well, what is it called? Really, that's a tough question to answer. <laughs> It goes by many names. It goes by many names. In the uh, the Japanese version, origin the originally is titled Zero. The U.S. version is titled Fatal Frame, Maiden of Black Water, and the in the EU, and this is this is also the screen that I get when I open it up. It's Project Zero, Maiden of Black Water. Okay, so uh, the <laughs> the artist formerly known as Fatal Frame, Maiden of Black Water. Is the game that we played today, yeah, or yeah. for today. We played this because it's been remastered. We're going to discuss how well this remaster has been done because I've got some thoughts on that matter. Boy, But yeah. originally it, it came out on September 27th in 2014 already. So this is a fairly old game. It came out for the Wii U. And I think the fact that it came out for the Wii U 
that is pretty noticeable. I would, I would 100% agree. I think as soon as I booted it up, I felt like I was uh, playing a Wii U game. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily for the best. It has this jankiness, this clunkiness that I think to a certain degree has always accompanied the Fatal Frame series. We're just going to refer to it by Fatal Frame now because this is actually the fifth game in the series already. And mm. I only remember, I think I've played the first game a long time ago without really knowing what it was. And I remember something that has been reaffirmed by playing Maiden of Black Water as well. This game series is super creepy. Yes, I think, okay, so for all that we're about to say about <laughs> Fatal Frame Maiden of Blackwater, it cannot go unsaid that it is a very, uh, at times, scary, very creepy game with um, fantastic atmosphere that I think can really only be accomplished when you're talking about um, old Japanese homesteads, shrines, or mountain temples. There's something very eerie about them. Yeah, that's what struck me immediately when I played Maiden of Blackwater. Because while I played many contemporary modern horror games that are much more effective in their technical fidelity, um, Fatal Frame Maiden of Blackwater is still so chillingly creepy, sometimes also because of its jankiness, but mm. just because it's it's centered around uh, Mount Hikami, I think. That's the, yes. that's the name of a, a mountain that is basically, and this is just typically Japanese horror, a, a haunted place, a place of mass suicides, where spirits have been seen, where eyes have been gouged out, and where bodies turn up just floating in the water of this mountain. So, Japanese scholar that I am, I'll say that Japanese religion is often centered around the, uh, the inherent differences between the pure and the impure. And there are a lot of stories where things that have a certain purity to them uh, become impure through really terrifying, horrible things often related to death. And the sacrality of that space has been tainted forever. And I think that Fatal Frame, particularly this game, is very good at establishing that idea without really going into it. That this was probably a nice place at some point, but after so many terrible things have happened to it, all that would make it holy or sacred has been completely turned against it. Yeah, the mountain's allure, especially in the sunset, when the sun sets behind the mountaintop, is so chilling that people mm. would wander to that mountain and would intentionally or unintentionally, we don't know, don't know that exactly, plunge themselves to death. If you've ever lived in a rural area, even taking it outside of uh, the Japanese context, if you've ever lived in a, an area with um, nature kind of surrounding you, I think that there is something uh, deeply frightening about, as, as you just said, Stefan, kind of the allure of this beautiful uh, scenery that hides something kind of evil within it. It does. And to me, it feels like it is so quintessentially Japanese, as in mm. um, it, it brings the world of the living and the world of the dead in very close contact with one another, like the wandering spirits that you can discover and see through an item which is called the camera obscura. And at least in the in the EU versions, who knows how many names oh, yeah. it actually has. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's it's called the camera obscura. It can kind of look into the netherworld. It can look beyond the realm of the living. And the key mechanic of the Fatal Frame series has always been and continues to be 
that you walk around and you can bring up that camera. That's your only way of defending that you have. And you can see spirits of the past. You can see suddenly you go through this old haunted house and suddenly there's the ghost of a woman hanging from the ceiling by a rope and you hear chilling voices and then ghosts appear and can actually also attack you and your way of defending is you have to take pictures of them ideally at the right moment when they're just about to leap at you and it forces you to look at these ghosts not to run away you're way too slow and clumsy in this game to do that (laughs) but to look at these ghosts there is a um a really interesting through line of the fatal frame series that is confronting these things um, and not shying away from them, which I think it's an interesting approach to folklore um, in, in the sense that when we tell each other sort of folk stories or we listen to urban legends or sort of ghost stories, I think there's kind of a, there's a feeling that they're at, at once kind of removed from ourselves, but also they feel very familiar and fatal frame in the time that I played this one, especially, I think does a really interesting, um, job of taking that idea of the distant familiarity, a ghost, something that you, that seems familiar. It seems like a person, but it isn't and making you just stare at it and confront it and come up with whatever thoughts you may have about death or the afterlife or horror that may lie beyond it. It is so profoundly scary. I can't put it into words. I've played many scary games, and I I don't think that Maiden of Blackwater is not the creepiest game I've played, but Mm. just as an example, you, you play as three different characters, mainly two different characters, at least in the first half, but there's a third yeah. one as well. And uh, you... Which is one character. She she basically has been found on the mountain herself. Her name is, I think, Yuri. And uh, she basically resides with a person, uh, a young lady, who's also basically doing ghost hunting and goes uh, on the lookout for uh, lost items, items that have been, quote, spirited away, or people that have been spirited away. Mm. Uh, much like the Ghibli film. And uh, <laughs> now... She, they live in this antique shop, in this in this house on this an, attached to this antique shop with these small corridors, and at the, you mostly walk through these corridors in the dark with creaking sound with every step that you take. Maybe some weird radio static echoing from one of the rooms, and it feels so close, claustrophobic mm. and so frightening that I think that's really when I when I walked through that house, I realized that's the effectiveness of the Fatal Frame series. Even before any kind of ghost appears, the entire atmosphere is so aggressively unnerving that it's almost hard to to bear when you're playing it at night in a dark room with headphones on. And I I did play it with headphones on, um, thinking that 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 would improve it. And I think it did. And um, I would say, too, that... uh, you mentioned the word kind of janky, and I think that that's a pretty apt description of this game. Um, but I think that in certain circumstances, the janky kind of tank controls that you have as one of these characters that you're playing as, where you have to turn your entire body around to go down a new hallway, or you know, you have to make deliberate decisions on how long you're going to run. Um, I think that in some cases it can really enhance that feeling of claustrophobia that you were talking about. Yeah, there's actually even a, 
an option. You can switch through the control modes. You can play in classic mode or in action mode. In my personal experience, I switched back and forth a little bit. It didn't make much of a difference to me. Like, it still feels, even in action <laughs> mode, super clumsy. And the character is like, yeah, it's a little bit, especially when you run, you've got tank controls. You hold down the L2 trigger, and that means the character is going to run. And then with, with the left stick, interestingly enough, you direct the character and you can't really turn the camera around anymore. It's <laughs> it's all a bit clumsy. Uh, but I actually enjoyed playing it in classic mode and I don't have a problem with the limitations of controls because, of course, it's a Wii U game originally. It's supposed to be a very creepy game. You're not supposed to be a character that's like super active and fighting and always has the overview of the situation. So I can accept that. However... <laughs> <laughs> However, <laughs> while I find some things really interesting, the, the camera obscura as a mechanic is amazing. I actually am intrigued in the history of the Suicide Mountain and uncovering that kind of lore. I think it's okay. It's not like a fantastic story that will stick to my mind for the rest of my life, but it's sufficiently intriguing and sufficiently creepy to involve me. But the the remaster, I think, is at the bare minimum of what makes it actually legit what of what you can use to actually legitimately call this game a remaster and not just a re-release i okay did you did you feel like it was just a port really and i i couldn't tell what was meant to be upscaled or remastered necessarily yeah i think that the if you look at the the graphical enhancements they are few and far between this could very mm. well just be a port the character animations are super stiff and uh the environments are like pixely and there's a, a lot of like, you know, things that are unclear because of a clear low resolution. I think they have, what they have definitely done that is noticeable, they've lay, put the, you know, the Wii U had a gamepad that had a camera in, its, in itself and you could like turn it. Yeah. It had like a gyroscope. I think that's what you call it, right? Yeah, yeah. And they, they've adopted that for the PS5, for the DualSense controllers which is good for, for some fine adjustment, but also a little bit wiggly. So, Stefan, do you want to guess what the first thing I did when I was playing Fatal Frame was? You turned that off. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that works. Um, re- I, I can see it in my head working really well with a Wii U gamepad because as much flack as the Wii U system got, I do think that they, they use the gamepad really well in a lot of mm. different games. And I could see this, especially because I should explain for the listeners. So when you're using the camera, you're able to kind of rotate its field of view um, clockwise or counterclockwise so that you can take portrait or landscape photos. Um, You can also take sort of at any angle, really, on a a circle. Um, And when you're, if you were to be playing that with a Wii U gamepad, you could manipulate the gamepad in a way that it, it would kind of be perfect because the Wii U gamepad is basically like a steering wheel. And you could just maneuver it to the position that you want but when you're using the playstation 5 controller it's working on the sensor in it which can be a little it can be a little off and it doesn't seem like the time was put into making that one-to-one as it maybe could have been and so i it was it was one of those situations where as soon as i knew i could change that i was in there and getting that to uh just the manual using the um the trigger buttons to manipulate that, yeah. I'm, I'm using both. I think 
I've over time gotten used enough to this uh, to the motion controls, mm. uh, such as in, in in Legend of Zelda, where you do, for example, the I do the the main aiming with the sticks, and then when I'm like I'm doing sort of like fine adjustments with the with the controller, and I, I kind of got <laughs> used to that. So it's sure. fine. It's 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 a neat little gimmick. It wouldn't have needed to be there. I know many people who said uh, that's basically the first thing that they turned off. And there's also Aside from the fact that there are, at least from what I can tell, not really many noticeable improvements. There are just many things that could have been improved and that have not been touched. Such as, you've got a map in this game that you can open to get an overview. But the map is hidden in, I think, two submenus. Uh, because you need to always navigate into the submenu and it always takes like two seconds before the cursor reacts again. And then you need to go in here and there. Yeah. And and this is just something where I think why why would you why would you do that if you say we're going to remaster this then this would be the first thing that I would change you know there yeah there are plenty of examples of games that um, when they are quote remastered really what's happening is there's no quality upscaling but there's a lot of quality of life improvements that are made like there are, there are better hotkeys where you can um, bring things up easier or you don't have to go through. Um, you know, all of the different like button combinations to get something that is really necessary, like a map to move forward in a game. And I just think that on the one hand, I think you can make uh, this counter argument exists for any uh, gripe that we would have with the game, which is, but you're not playing as an experienced person. You're playing as a, you know, a, a person who's in a really horrific situation who maybe doesn't know what's going on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll grant you that. But I'm the player and it's a little frustrating to open yeah. <laughs> to get into this. It is very frustrating. It's also stretches of gameplay where I would have said there, there's some changes that are just necessary. Um, you often end up in the same kind of area, in the same kind of hub area, which is, I think, the uh, something, some forest, the un unexplained forest the un i don't know unidentified forest i've got no <laughs> idea i forgot how it's called <laughs> the very spooky forest yeah the very spooky yeah. let's let's call it the very spooky forest and the thing is yeah. that this kind of connects different places but uh, your character walks very slowly and especially at the beginning i i didn't realize that this was supposed to be some kind of area that is just there to be traversed so i walked around in that area and i just thought like my god this game is really slow like it takes a long <laughs> time before anything of interest happens yeah it's okay that it's slow because that builds up the momentum for scares but i think there are just some things that could have easily been changed to make it more approachable to make it flow a little bit better i agree especially since um the as we said at the beginning the setting is so instantly gripping and there's really, I mean, the opening, this is not a spoiler, it's the opening scene, but the opening imagery of the girl in the water with all of the other sort of maiden ghosts laying in the, in the shallow water around her, it's really terrifying imagery. And I think that you, you kind of get gripped by that and then you're hit with all of these slowdowns and, you know, menu problems and control issues. And I think, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm very charitable with horror games, but I definitely felt myself saying, "Okay, come on, let's pick up the pace a little bit here." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There there would have been so many nice ways in which the game could have been 
just a tiny bit improved and then it would help the genuinely creepy imagery. I would totally agree. These cutscenes, they are so profoundly scary that mm. uh, I, I'm like on the edge of my seat when I watch these cutscenes. It's like really effective short horror sequences that, that could come straight out of a nightmare. Yes, and it's it's touching on a number of different Japanese horror tropes too. I mean, the the lady in the water is a is a um, particularly you know used kind of lady ghost story. But then also there's there's some intrigue about the occult and rituals and you know other things that people shouldn't be involved in in these small mountain towns. And there's a lot of really juicy stuff in there. Um, and uh, it, it definitely it gets a thumbs up for me for drawing me in with the um, the atmosphere for sure, and also carrying me further in my Japanese studies. I must say, mm. I'm playing this with English texts and Japanese audio, and the the Japanese is actually pretty accessible. I can understand almost everything. They're not there's not it's much exciting. there's not much speaking going on there. Um, and I, I couldn't understand the more in-depth writing because obviously there's a lot of stuff where you just collect notes and you get like five pages of, of uh, reading, which is often, though, quite interesting. Mm. That I couldn't understand in Japanese. That's what I, why I have the text in, in English. But the cutscenes and the audio snippets in between, they're very approachable and easy to understand. Yes, and I think it adds to... Uh... We, we've talked about this before in our Squid Game episode where, which do you listen to it in the language that it was created in? And I think this is a really good example of, um, because of how steeped in ghost stories and folklore from Japan this series is, I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not playing it in Japanese. Right. I think so too. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Also, especially when you have the situation that you have the Japanese audio and the English texts Mm. Uh, then you could then you can compare and you can see that sometimes they're just things that are uh, quite a bit different like the typical situation is that in <laughs> in the, the 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 subtitle it would say something like oh where is she now and the audio would just be like eh <laughs> <laughs> that happens so often <laughs> that's such a typical thing for for japanese translations yeah but yeah i think Overall, I would say it's 40 euro at the moment. It's not a full-priced game. And I would say I would say it's worth it. It's not a bad thing to do to play Fatal Frame Maiden of Blackwater. But I came to the conclusion that I would have been happier paying 20 euro for it rather than... Or $20 rather than $40. I think I agree with you there. I think that it's... Um... Let me put it this way. If you're interested in the Fatal Frame series, I think that this is a pretty good entry point into it. It's accessible now. You can dive into it and kind of get a feel for what the tone of that series is going for. Um, but I agree. I think um, I, I do wish it were more $20, $25. Um, particularly because the biggest thing for me is that as intriguing as it is and as... Um, you know, great that the spooky atmosphere is, I think that it just feels like a Wii U game to me. Um, and in a, in a world where, um, I also recently played the Alan Wake remaster that feels like a remaster. There's a lot of really, um, great changes in that, that you can tell a lot of 
effort and love went into that game. And this feels like, I, I, you know, it almost feels like they were losing the rights to Fatal Frame made into Blackwater and they had to do something. <laughs> <laughs> we need to make a game quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it might be a hint towards them actually putting out something genuinely new. Because I think the the Fatal Frame releases are relatively far in between. Yes. Like it, it takes it takes quite a couple of years before the next game comes out. And I would assume that this is basically a precursor to a, let's say, Fatal Frame 6. I would love that, especially because um, as, as much as this was kind of a, you know, maybe a, a C plus B minus entry, um, I would say that um, one of my favorite uh, video game companies in the last maybe three or four years has been Koei Tecmo. I've enjoyed so much of what they've put out and they're putting out... Um, the new Final Fantasy game that's sort of like a Dark Souls Neo experience. Um, and maybe they're just trying to do an overhaul of their old series. You know, they've had a lot of good luck with the uh, the Warriors type games, like with Hyrule Warriors and um, uh, Persona 5 Strikers. So maybe they're kind of getting a, a second wind and trying to dust off some old properties. And it's super amazing that they have a place they have an important place within video game culture because they are mm. not the typical AAA publisher and that doesn't seem the direction in which they strive to go. Maybe the Final Fantasy title is the one that goes most in this direction. But even there, they're not trying to make a Final Fantasy game as such. Yeah. Um, and and I think there is an importance in these, let's say, often people call them like double A games. Games that are not, not uh, that don't have a super high production budget, but at the same time also games that don't have to appeal to everyone. If you want to have a super niche Japanese horror game that's super effective, then Fatal Frame is is the way to go. Maybe Silent Hill and so on as well. But yeah, that's that's basically the right direction. Totally agree. Number two, let's talk about the Nintendo Switch Online Plus expansion pack. Yes. The the dust has settled a little bit, it seems. Yeah, the, the dust <laughs> is settling a little bit and we're trying to get an overview and following up on all the stories because we reported already in October that Nintendo announced its Nintendo Switch Online Expansion Pack. Um, this is an online subscription. So Nintendo Switch Online is a subscription already. And this expansion pack adds a selection of N64 and Sega Genesis games. It includes free access to the Animal Crossing Happy Home Paradise DLC. And it comes with a rather whooping price. <laughs> so there's a standard Nintendo Switch Online subscription, which costs you $20 per year. And then there's the expansion pack, which costs you $50 per year. So Nintendo is basically asking for more than double the price uh, of its original subscription. And so far, it that hasn't really that didn't really sit well with customers and with players. Because the thing is that first of all, as we pointed out uh, in our show two weeks ago already, the Animal Crossing DLC is something that, okay, we can say that that DLC in itself costs roughly $25, but it's only for people who actually care about Animal Crossing. And that's not everyone who may sign up or may consider signing up to this service. Also, people are expressing their displeasure a lot by downvoting the announcement trailer on YouTube. I found that at the time of the recording of this show, um, the trailer, the announcement had 18,000 upvotes and 162,000 downvotes. Ooh, <laughs> so, boy, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
this is a really clear signal that people aren't happy with the way Nintendo is handling this. And for those that have been playing the N64 games on this expansion pass, um, some, there are also some very critical voices. People say that, of course, I mean, Nintendo is using an emulator to bring back these, to bring these N64 games to the Switch. So this is not a remaster or like a, a re-release, but this is the emulation of the original games. And People would complain that things that I found is that there's a noticeable input lag for some of these games that make them, you know, a little bit uh, wobbly in uh, when playing. And there are also some alterations that people have noticed when it comes to the visuals, such as um, fog and, you know, misty environments not being able to be rendered properly. And that's why it just seems like very clear. I noticed some complaints about this when it comes to uh, Ocarina of Time. Yes, I think uh, I would refer to that as the the Silent Hill remaster effect, where you've you've upgraded it just enough so that the uh, the problem that <laughs> that ended up being a boon to the area or the series is now fixed, and it seems silly. So I know that Ocarina of Time definitely had a lot of a lot of backlash around it because, of course, that's the game that everybody went to first. Yeah, that's the game that everybody everybody jumps into. Ocarina of Time, um, then Mario 64, and uh, Mario Kart, obviously. Um, and, well, the thing is, though, it's a little bit difficult. It's a thin line to walk, because on the one hand, I understand yeah. the criticism, of course. But the thing is, though, there are often very nostalgic memories attached to these games and to the play experience. And then you play it again, and then you might realize, okay, maybe it's not what I remember. So I've actually found an article by Tech Radar, and of course, dear listeners, as always, we're going to put all these articles in the show notes so you can read up on the matter yourself if you don't take want to, don't to take our word for it. Tech Radar they basically claimed that the, upon closer inspection, the emulator is not as bad as people say. So the input lag is often negligible. It's about one frame. And this is not particularly terrible. Of course, um, the visual impression also may change due to the fact that now the uh, the Switch emulator brings these games up to a 720p resolution, whereas the original N64 put out a 240p resolution. And that on CRT televisions. So uh, these old, you know, blocky televisions that had the size of a proper aquarium um, they had a different technology in the way that they generated the picture and that's why they felt often more responsive and that's also why um, the uh, the textures of for example a wall on the n64 would seem it would gloss over the fact that these are actually just very tiny squares that are pasted next to one another right. and i think that's a bit of a problem when the technical fidelity raises or rises and then you look at these games again and then it, it's like oh well, that's not how it looked before well yeah of course because it's a different television it's a much higher thing now you notice a lot more of the problems that it may have had originally already but never really caught your attention you know it, it should be said also that um i i think that for a very long time um people had been saying well the the wii's virtual console had all of these games and they they looked fine right and i was one of these people and then i had that realization that you just brought up which is i don't know about you stefan but when i had a wii i was playing it on an old crt television 
So when I played these old games, it was as if, you know, really, it was as if I had been playing it on my N64 on the same television. <laughs> so yeah. there, there's a definite difference now that we're all in the land of, you know, LCD and OLED screens. And it is, I, I, I do wonder how much of this is the you can't go home again effect with a lot of these games for people. And um, I got wrapped up in it too, I think. I got caught up in the the anti-Nintendo hype, as we always do. And uh, it just seems like, well, maybe these are just older games. That <laughs> there are some believable problems with the emulator. But yes, of course. I mean, there's a reason for why uh, at the university here in Marburg, we have a game lab and we have a, an, a corner where we have a proper old chunky CRT TV. Beautiful. Just because if you want to play an SNES game or an N64 game, then you better play it on the old CRT TV. If you play it on a flat screen on like 4K OLED television, then of course it's going to look a little bit weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't built with that technology in mind. And to be fair, the emulator also adds some functionalities such as online play. If you want to play uh, Mario Kart, then you can play that online now, which is pretty cool. That is very cool. That's basically the point where people are saying, well, there's a little bit of a divide. Some people say it's like terrible. Other people say it's not that bad. And I think I would land somewhere in between without, I haven't played it personally yet. Um, I haven't had the time to put it, put into this N64 games. But um, I must say that my assessment of the situation for the moment is it's not a complete failure. But the thing is that this subscription service is overpriced for what it offers. I think, especially when you compare it with things like PlayStation Plus and Game Pass, these things are off, these things are more expensive, of course. Well, well, yeah, barely, aren't they? Barely. I think when barely. you when you average it, barely. Barely. It's not that much, actually. It's not that much of a difference. But PlayStation Plus and especially the Game Pass offer a lot more in exchange. They offer a lot more value for money. And I think that Nintendo put too much emphasis here on nostalgia and bets put too much on the table of just saying, we're going to go all out by saying people surely want to play Ocarina of Time again, you know, in whatever version. So we're just going to say, hey, give us, you know, $50 a month, uh, $50 a year. I think that's probably where a lot of the backlash is coming from. And the issue, I think, when you have a, a hefty price tag like that, and that's what you present first, people aren't as willing to be charitable with the actual product that comes out. And I, I think that that may have happened here. I'm reminded of when um, the PS4 was, or the PS3, excuse me, was introduced at E3. And the oh, price tag terrible. was like, oh man. And it, <laughs> it, it just, it dug an early grave for itself, which was a shame because as we both know, the PS3 is a fantastic system. And so I think that here's a case where that happened again, and also it's Nintendo, and people have a lot of baggage with old Uncle Nintendo. Nintendo, So I think it was just a perfect storm, and it is what it is. Let's give them the last word on this tiny side quest, because in the meantime, Nintendo has also presented its second quarter financial report. I've looked through this financial report briefly just to see what they have on the, on the matter of, uh, of Nintendo Switch Online. And they seem generally rather satisfied. So they say that the subscriber numbers are rising corresponding to the install base of the Nintendo Switch itself, of the system. And as of September 2021, 
they had 32 million accounts subscribed to Nintendo Switch online. So that's uh, a lot of people. And uh, Nintendo says, quote, going forward, we will continue to improve and expand both Nintendo Switch Online and Nintendo Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack, striving to provide services that satisfy consumers, end quote. And you know what? Uh, it's Nintendo. <laughs> they have a track record, right? My guess is that they'll eventually, they add a few more games uh, to the roster that will help justify the price tag. Maybe they will also go $10 cheaper at a certain point. I could imagine that. Or they're doing like a big thing where for the first month uh, you get it for like $1 or whatever. Like like Game Pass does it. Um, and that they will make it m mildly more attractive. And then people are just going to get used to it. Well, that's that's the price that's there. If you want to, then you pay it. I do wonder if... Um... Uh, they will drop that price after the uh, the Animal Crossing kind of hype goes back down again. That may be the case where it's tied into that DLC. So once that kind of levels off, they'll drop it a little bit. Maybe. Yeah, that's a possibility, yeah. Shall we move on to another subscription service with number three? Yes. So here in the US, Netflix has launched their mobile game app. Um, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting, I think. I think we had we had talked about this before um, about the possibility of Netflix kind of going into the world of gaming because I had talked about it briefly in uh, July, and it's happening. So it's here, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so right now um, I have this uh, Variety article that kind of breaks down um, what what kind of came with it and. Um, sort of what their plans are in the future. So uh, on Tuesday, November the 2nd, uh, Netflix got um, this app for Android mobile users um, and also a number of different tablet devices. So for now, um, they seem to be largely mobile games. Um, the five games that they've put out are Stranger Things 1984, Stranger Things 3, The Game, Shooting Hoops, Card Blast, and Teeter Up. Um, if you ask me what teeter up is, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to look more into it. Teeter up. I'm just going to make it up now because I have no idea. Teeter up <laughs> is a game that's like, it's like a mobile arca arcade game where you mm. have to like shoot things from the bottom to the top in order to cut a certain, cut a certain rope and then points fall down from the top. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. That is teeter up. Yes. Yeah, you heard it yeah, here yeah, first, yeah, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like, um. The you may have noticed that two of those five titles are Stranger Things related, um, and so it seems like one of the really exciting things that is going on with this is that they are looking to kind of adapt some of their original programming into video games. Um, from what I understand of those Stranger Things mobile games, they are kind of retro '80s arcade games um, set uh, in the universe of Stranger Things, which I'm not too familiar with. I watched the first season, um, but I think. That's an exciting place to start. Stranger Things is huge for Netflix, and I think it's wrapped up in so much nostalgia that making a throwback kind of arcade game for it makes sense. Um, but they say that more games are on the way. Um, they also say that these games, um, they're part of your overall Netflix subscription. So if you're subscribed to, Net subscribed to Netflix, then you will have access to these games. And they say that 
there will be no extra fees, ads, or in-app purchases for this mobile app. I say they claim because uh, who knows what the future may hold, but I don't know. That seems pretty pretty good if that's true. It's probably a similar concept to what Apple Arcade is as well, right? Because on Apple mm. Arcade, you can also get a selection of games that you can download and all the microtransactions and stuff that could possibly be there are entirely deactivated. Yeah, I find it quite intriguing. I find it especially intriguing because it is genuinely, I think, the first streaming service that goes so directly into video games and they have a strong stance and they bring a lot of money in. So I could imagine that going from here that they will further expand their lineup of games and that, of course, this will bring also more people into this. Because if I imagine that someone is like, let's say, a big fan of, hypothetically speaking, Stranger Things and then, you know, goes through Netflix and they have this tiny icon like, hey, the new Stranger Things game is out and you can play it now just for free, like, just like that, you know? Then you might, yeah. after what, finishing a season... You might you might be like okay I've got some time before the before I want to watch the next season or before it comes out so I'm gonna play that game you know you've just hit on something that I didn't even consider which is this is to fill the uh, after binge bubble that you have yeah. Yeah. <laughs> once the season is done oh that's kind of that's kind of brilliant actually yeah or maybe going uh, yeah. deeper into some backstories of of characters you know I could mm. imagine that they would they would go down that road into that you know transmedia universe uh, trying to build that up. It's exciting. I think that um, they tried that with Bandersnatch a little bit, or they kind of dipped their toes in the in the water with that Black Mirror movie Bandersnatch, which was like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of movie. And um, I remember that came out, and that was a huge, huge thing for a little while, and then it seemed like nothing really came of it. But maybe this is the result, is that they felt like the interactivity was, was reasonable. Well... I think that one of the um, uh, the vice president of game development um, for Netflix, uh, Mike Verdu, has said of this um, project, whether you're craving a casual game you can start from scratch or an immersive experience that, that lets you dig deeper into your favorite series, we want to begin to build a library of games that offers something for everyone. So it does seem like they are having these as you know, they're having the teeter up kind of games, which are just fun arcade <laughs> games. But yeah. it does seem like a big uh, point in doing this is to maybe provide supplemental or tangential material for their popular series. I think that's the most likely scenario and probably also the most likely scenario in which they will be successful. Because the thing is that there are gaming subscription services already on, you know, the Google Play Store as well as, you know, there's Apple Arcade on Apple devices. So I think... What they will be most successful with is, as Netflix always is, with their original productions. Yes. And uh, we live in a world of streaming now. I think that's just the reality of it. And um, this is, a, I think, an interesting way in for Netflix to take all of their um, kind of original property and expand on it in different ways. Because, of course, there are, um, just staying on Stranger Things, I know that there are several novelizations and kind of uh, books that they've put out under the Netflix label. So um, you mentioned being kind of more transmedia. I think this is the next step for them in that direction. Have you had the opportunity to try it already? I have not, although I'm, I'm going to um, because I'm, I'm interested to see 
specifically about this Stranger Things game, I want to see how in-depth they're trying to make these companion pieces. But I, I have yet to try it. Yeah, the Stranger Things games are supposed to be pretty good. I've, I haven't played them myself. I've read a couple of reviews because I actually really like Stranger Things. And uh, I think they're supposed to be pretty good. But the thing is, I am not in the US, so I can't try it. And I have an iPhone and not an Android phone, so I can double not try it. <laughs> yes. Well, I think uh, well, I'll be your, your emissary then. I'll try them this week and maybe report back next time. But I think... Uh, yeah, speaking of, um, so you mentioned iOS devices. Uh, it does seem that they are qu- coming out, quote, in the next few months. So yeah. we'll probably not see them until next year, but it is the plan to put these out on every device. Netflix is starting something new, coming out with something new, and at the same time, another game is coming to an end. Number four, announcing the close of Harry Potter Wizards Unite. This is from Niantic, and I took the uh, story from the original HarryPotterWizardsUnite.com website. So, back in the day, when Wizards Unite launched, that was in June 2019, it carried pretty high hopes, right? This was a time when Niantic, the same developer behind Pokemon Go, was sailing on a huge hype wave, like a hype tsunami. Yeah. It was crazy. Pokemon Go was everywhere. People wouldn't start talking about Pokemon Go, these location-based games with augmented reality features and some, you know, community cooperation involved were the talk of the town. And of course, I thought, I felt, felt that as well. It would make sense to say, well, if that works so well with Pokemon, then how well must it work with Harry Potter? Because Harry Potter is, I think, at least if I'm not mistaken here, the bigger franchise than Pokemon. Harry Potter is a lot more successful than Pokemon and a lot more popular across the entire globe, I think. I think you're right. The thing is, though, it never caught on in the same way. I played it at the time when it came out Mm. for a month or two. You know, it was like I had dropped out of Pokemon Go already. And I was like, it was a warm summer evening and you just think, what are you going to do? You're going to take a walk and, you know, be a little bit of a wizard. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And it was fun. It was not a bad game. That's the kind of thing that hurts me a little bit about it. It was not essentially a bad game. It had pretty much everything that Pokemon Go had except for catching Pokemon. Obviously, of course, you wouldn't do that. And that's uh, that's kind of a problem. But I just I think the main reason for why it failed is just that Pokemon Go already existed and people were still hooked to that. And it was a huge hype with Pokemon Go. And now Harry Potter Wizards Unite comes out and people are just kind of, oh, okay, so this also exists. This is a thing that's just like Pokemon Go, you know? A little A little too similar with not enough of its own draw. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So after two years, Niantic is shutting down the game for good on January 31st, 2022. And until then, there are several in-game events that players can still make use of. They can enjoy shorter waiting times for item crafting. And there are also several ways that they implement it now so that people can quickly spend their in-game currency, of course, because people have spent money already and they've got in-game items. And now when it shuts down then they can't use it anymore. So for all of you out there still playing Harry Potter Wizards Unite, which is apparently not that few people, 
On January 31st, the game will be entirely removed from all app stores. And even if you have it installed, it won't work anymore because it's a location-based game and requires continued maintenance. And in the meantime, Niantic is actively working on nine other games. <laughs> if wow. I'm not wrong here, they're working on nine games. They've just recently released in the last few days Pikmin Bloom, and they're going to release Transformers Heavy Metal in the coming months. So they are busy. I think uh, salute to all the Harry Potter Wizards Unite players. I know it's always a, a pretty pretty heavy thing when a game like that kind of closes its doors because there are, you know, big fans of every game, right? I think that's fair to say. And when they shut down, it is it is something else. So enjoy the last few months of Wizards Unite, I suppose. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you do want to support us, then remember that you can get Studying Pixels Plus by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. And of course, it would be absolutely helpful if you went ahead and gave us a neat little Apple Podcasts review that really helps us not to get drowned out by the algorithm. You can submit your thoughts and your questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. And we're looking forward to hear from you. And you're going to definitely hear from us next week, Sunday. See you then. See you then.